In this weekend episode, three segments from this week's Washington Journal program on C-SPAN. First, a classified documents 101 with Yale School professor and former Pentagon special counsel Una Hathaway. Then Maya McGinnis, president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, discusses the debt ceiling and proposals to cut federal spending. Plus, Seth Jones of the Center for Strategic and International Studies discusses his new report that found the U.S. defense industry is not adequately prepared for a protracted conventional war with an enemy such as China. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Now, a conversation with Yale Law School professor and former Pentagon special counsel, Una Hathaway, about the classification of government documents. Could you talk about your background and experience, particularly at the Pentagon, when it comes to classified documents? Yeah. um, So I worked for a year at the Pentagon as a special counsel to the general counsel. And in that job, I had top secret uh, special compartmented information clearance, which is the highest level of clearance the U.S. government provides. And in that role, I had a chance to work with uh, lots of classified documents at all levels at, you know, confidential level, at the secret level, and at the top secret level. Those are the three levels of documents. And when I left government and came back to work uh, in my uh, my regular job as a professor at Yale, I reflected back on the work that I'd been doing and all the classified documents that I had seen. And one of the most striking aspects of, of that was just realizing that so much of what I worked with, so much of the classified material was just kind of ordinary information and probably shouldn't have been classified in the first place. Uh, you talked about those three levels of distinction when it comes to classification. Can you describe what exactly they mean when it, when you call something secret or top secret or confidential? Yeah, so these three different levels basically reflect evaluations by the government of how much damage it's going to do to national security for that information to be released. So there's unclassified information. Obviously, the view is that's not going to do any damage to national security for that information released. Confidential is it could do some damage to national security and then it escalates from there. So then it goes to secret that it do significant uh, damage to national security. And then top secret is the sort of highest damage to U.S. national security. And so the classification is supposed to reflect how important the information is and how damaging it would for that information to get out. But in my experience, uh, reality didn't always reflect that. Why is that? Well, the way that the documents work. So when you're making a decision, when you're working with these materials, if you have derivative classification authority, which is what I had, that means I can't originally classify information. But whenever I'm writing a document, 
I have to assess what level it should be classified at based on the information that I'm including. So if I'm using information from another document and that's classified at top secret, my document also has to be classified top secret, even if most of it is unclassified. So 99% of it is unclassified, but I have one fact in there that's top secret, then the document has to be top secret. And if I'm not really rigorous about what's called paragraph marking in the document. So in theory, everyone who does this is supposed to mark every single paragraph. But truthfully, in these busy jobs, people just generally don't do that. And so what happens is every time somebody's relying on a previous document that's classified at a certain level, they have to also classify at that level, at the highest possible level. And so it kind of has this, this magnifying effect and more and more and more documents get classified at the highest level. It's also the fact that when you're working at, you're sitting at your desk and you're making a decision, how am I going to classify this document? Do I classify as top secret? Do I classify as secret? Maybe it could be unclassified. There's literally no consequences, at least in the job that I was in, for classifying something more highly than is absolutely necessary. But if you classify something as unclassified or as secret and it should have been top secret, that could be very damaging because you're you're potentially giving access to people who shouldn't have access to that information. And that could have severe consequences for your job. You could get fired. I mean, in theory, you potentially could be even criminally prosecuted. So the dangers of getting it wrong on the downside are, are very extreme, but the dangers of getting it wrong by kind of classifying something more highly are very limited for you as a person who's working in government. So that too creates these incentives to just classify things at a higher level. Because of those incentives, what's your guess as far as how much classified material gets produced on a yearly basis? I don't have to, well, I have a rough guess um, based on some facts. Um, so the facts are the last time the government tried to count, um, it estimated about 50 million documents a year. Um, so 50 million classified documents a year. In 2017, it kind of gave up uh, even trying to count um, because they really don't have good records and agencies count these things differently. So it's probably gone up since then. I doubt that it's gone uh, much below that. So we're talking millions and millions of new documents being created every year. And meanwhile, in theory, we should be declassifying documents at roughly the same pace. But truthfully, the declassification process is not anywhere close to keeping up with the classification process. So we're creating 50 million new classified documents every single year on top of everything we already have. And so it's become this huge edifice of classified information the government has to try to protect. Professor Hathaway, if something is classified, what happens to it? Well, what happens is there are different rules for how you have to store those documents and whether and how you can transport those documents. So if something is a top secret document, it has to be kept in a special compartmented information facility referred to as a SCIF. Um, and if you're going to work with those documents, you're going to read those documents, you've got to be in a SCIF to do it. Um, and secret documents have their own set of rules. They also have to be kept in a secure location, but they don't necessarily have to be kept in a SCIF or read and worked with in a SCIF. Um, and then the same for confidential information. There's so do, in fact, when I worked at the Pentagon, there are you have three different computer systems on the same desk. Um, so you're sitting at your desk and you're switching between these different computer systems. So their physical documents are kept physically um, in different storage facilities. Of course, these days, almost everything is electronic and they're completely separate computer systems and completely separate computer storage systems for each of these class classified systems. So if you're working in a top secret 
system, you can only communicate with other top secret systems. And you, of course, can't get on the web. Um, if you're on your secret computer, you can only communicate with other secret systems and save onto secret hard drives and the same thing with unclassified systems. So it's all segregated and managed very carefully uh, by the government in order to try and protect these secrets as effectively as we can. So as an example, if you had a document and I wanted to see it, what would I have to go through to see that document? Well, you couldn't if it was classified, um, unless you had clearance. Um, uh, to get clearance, generally, you have to be working for the U.S. government, um, uh, either directly as a government employee or working for a contractor that um, has the capacity to provide clearance. There are some former government employees and some who work with the government who are also able to get clearances, um, uh, generally private military contractors, some people who've worked in government who continue to do legal work or pro provide consultation or, or information to the U.S. government. But a reporter, I'm sorry to say, is not going to get access to this unless perhaps it gets leaked. Of course, that would be illegal. Um, so the person leaking that information to you uh, potentially could be criminally prosecuted. Um, and if you retain the information and use it knowing that it's classified information, you potentially could be criminally prosecuted. So there is the threat of criminal prosecution hanging all over all of this. I, the reason I ask, and I probably should have clarified, if I did even have a clearance, I can ask you. For, now we're at a stage now, and ultimately we'll talk about this, where classified documents are showing up in homes of various presidents in that case and, and various other legislators, I suppose. What's the chain of custody of a document? And uh, Because I, I suppose that in asking and seeking out that information, there's a process. And yeah. you describe that. Well, it depends, right? So somebody like the vice president has access to everything. And... He's got a computer um, uh, access on his computer, and I'm sure he's got doc paper documents being provided to him on a regular basis that are all levels. Um, and, you know, that material is going to be provided to him in paper form. I don't know exactly what his preferences are. He probably looks at things electronically. Different different high-level government officials have, have different kinds of preferences. In uh, what you're supposed to do is if you take a top secret document out of a SCIF, there is a very specific process that is supposed to be followed. It can be done, but it has to be sealed in a certain way. And it, there has to be a careful you know, chain of custody. You're really not supposed to transport it. When I was at the Pentagon, I didn't have permission to take anything out of the building. I could take uh, materials from one SCIF to another but it had to be sealed within a bag, within a bag, within a bag. Um, and, you know, I had to go directly from one office to the other. So you have to, there is a lot of uh, very stringent rules for somebody at my level, which was very low level. For somebody at the vice president's level, you know, he's dealing with classified documents on a regular basis. And um, I don't, the problem we have in evaluating what happened with, with, with President Biden is whether, you know, what are these documents? We don't really know that much about what, they contain and at what level they were classified. Top secret documents of the kind that um, were removed by uh, President Trump and uh, being held at, at Mar-a-Lago have these big, very imposing cover sheets that say top secret. If you've seen that FBI photo of the kind of materials sort of scattered on the ground, you can see they have this red stripes on them and big top secret language on them. You know, those are kind of hard to miss. Things that are classified at lower levels, like secret, usually have like a little line at the top that's often in red if it's printed on a color printer that says secret. It wouldn't be impossible to miss that. Um, uh, although that would be, you know, at my level, that would be very uh, irresponsible um, and nothing ever left my office that that was classified. 
Um, and at the confidential level, of course, that material um, tends to be less closely held and less less protected, although it's also governed by these many of these classification rules. So, you know, without knowing whether it was a top secret document, whether it was whether it was confidential, whether it was secret, it's harder to evaluate that secret and confidential documents. It's easier to see those getting mixed in with unclassified documents. You know, you can see a binder that gets put together that has a number of documents within it. One of the documents in there might be a confidential or secret document and somebody kind of picks up the binder and brings it home and doesn't realize that within that is a top secret document. Now, you can say, you know, that shouldn't have been done. It should have been prepared more closely. And what they should have done, if that if that's the case, is that binder should have had a top secret sticker on the front um, indicating that it contained, you know, secret or top secret, whatever the level was. But truthfully, when people are busy, they don't always follow those rules, close, rules closely. And I think on top of it, it's important to remember, again, that a lot of this information is pretty unremarkable. So it's not crazy to imagine that somebody thought, oh, that's not that big of a deal. You know, I just read the same thing more or less in the New York Times this morning. I'm putting into a pile of documents without sort of mentally thinking like this is a secret that really needs to be protected mm -hmm. because it's such an unusual information that I only have access to a rare, rare number of people have access to. So again, without knowing what's exactly in that document, it's hard to evaluate how, how problematic it is. We don't know what level it's classified at. But it's not impossible to imagine that somebody's working literally all day long with these classified documents, um, you know, that they would get mixed in with unclassified documents and therefore transported um, after he leaves. Um, okay. So, you know, we don't know enough exactly to evaluate that. That was Una Hathaway, a former special counsel at the Pentagon and now a Yale Law School professor. Next, a conversation with Maya McGinnis from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget about the debt ceiling and the debate over federal spending. Remind people about your organization and the position you take when it comes to these issues of spending and debt levels and such. Sure thing. Uh, I run the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. It is bipartisan. It focuses on fiscal responsibility, um, which basically I would define as there are times to borrow. There are many times it makes sense to borrow, but you should borrow for economic reasons, not political reasons. We borrow a lot just for the politics of it. So we focus on Sound fiscal policy, it doesn't mean you have to balance the budget, but it does mean you should borrow wisely and responsibly. And uh, we are very bipartisan. Our board is run by people from all on the spectrum of politics. Our staff is all over the place. I'm a political independent, so it is not about politics. It's about fiscal policy. When it comes to debt ceiling itself, is this about fiscal policy or is it about politics, particularly the debate that's taking place on Capitol Hill? You know, I know it's being framed a great deal as all being political, but I think there's a lot of policy in this discussion. The debt ceiling um, is something that absolutely has to be raised. There is no question that even talk of default is damaging to the country and the economy and our role in the world. However, the issues that are being raised, which is we need to think about how to control our government borrowing, our government spending, the fact that we have a huge fiscal gap and that this is one of the only times that conversation happens, that's a very legitimate discussion to have. So um, there's a lot of politics going on. Everything in Washington is about politics right now, but it's surfacing some truly important issues. Uh, before we get to the politics yeah. of it, these extraordinary measures that we hear about, what exactly does that mean for the federal government? So when you hit the debt ceiling, instead of you, you stop just before you hit the debt ceiling because you can't allow a default, 
And there are some government trust funds that you can actually take money out of and put other treasury bonds into, and they don't count towards the debt ceiling. So basically, uh, we're playing a game of three-card Monty with a bunch of different government trust funds. They will all be replenished. It will not harm those trust funds. Um, but it's not the right way to do business, right? We should get back into the normal convention of raising the debt ceiling before we have to use these so-called extraordinary measures they're becoming ordinary, and we shouldn't, we always wait till the last minute for everything. We really shouldn't on the debt ceiling, and I would like to see us reel this back so we start looking at the actual debt ceiling as the limit, not these extraordinary measures, which we don't have the precise knowledge of when they will run out of money to play this game. Back to the politics for a second. Uh, Kevin McCarthy was on Capitol Hill, the House Speaker, talking about issues of the debt ceiling, particularly the conversations it fosters about spending issues. I want to play a little bit of what he had to say and get your response to it. Clean debt ceiling off the table. I don't see why you would continue the past behavior. I would think, for one standpoint, if you've just talked the question, is a clean debt ceiling. Well, would that mean we wouldn't do any appropes bills and we just do an omni that we wouldn't even do a budget? Yeah, that's totally off the table. We've got to change. Just raising the debt ceiling without conditions. Well, no, I mean, well. I don't know if you have any children, but if you had a child and you gave them a credit card and they kept raising it and they hit the limit, so you just raised it again, clean increase, and again and again, would you just keep doing that or would you change the behavior? We're six months away. Why wouldn't we sit down now and change this behavior that we would put ourselves on a a more fiscally strong position. It would make the future generation, make our nation stronger, make the economics and uh, stronger for this country. I think that's why we should sit down and I would I would welcome. It's the first conversation I had with the president of winning uh, speaker, the things I wanted to sit down and talk with him about. Who wants to put the nation in some type of threat at the last minute of debt ceiling? Nobody wants to do that. That's why we're asking, let's, let's change our behavior now. Let's sit down. He's the president. We're the majority in the House. The Democrats are the majority in the Senate. And let's exactly the way the founders designed Congress to work, find the compromise and find the, the common sense compromise that puts us back onto a balanced budget that I believe every household Every state does this. Every city, every county. Why would the Democrats sit back and say, just raise it with no discussion? Nobody else can do that, and I don't think the American people want that. My guess. So let me say, for the most part, I think what the speaker says there makes an awful lot of sense. So the point is, the debt ceiling is a moment when we pause, we assess our fiscal situation, Anybody who's looking at the numbers at the Congressional Budget Office, uh, looks at any of our debt unsustainable numbers, knows it's not in good shape. We are not where we need to be fiscally. So you take this moment, you assess, and you think, do we need to make changes? I think the speaker is rightly saying, yes, absolutely, we do need to make changes, and this is a time to talk about it. I'm going to make this point. Everything I say, no one should be talking about default. This should not be about holding the debt ceiling hostage. That would be incredibly damaging. But using it as an opportunity for a conversation, absolutely. Now, I'll make a couple points because you wanted to bring up politics, and there is a lot of politics involved here. When the debt ceiling was increased under President Trump, the same people were not making the same requests. And in fact, what I think was really outrageous was that under the President President Trump's debt ceiling increases, we actually attached legislation that increased the debt by over, well over a trillion, almost $2 trillion in new borrowing as part of the debt ceiling increases. That is a terrible backwards way to lift the debt ceiling. And that was bipartisan support and really detrimental to the fiscal health of the country. 
So it is frustrating to see that people only care about the issue depending on who's in office or who's not. Like I said, everything's politics. But I think what the speaker is asking for there, let's sit down, let's talk about how to attach some reasonable measures that will deal with borrowing and spending, does make a great deal of sense. I will point out one other thing. No, I'll point out two other things if it's okay. Um, One, he mentioned balancing the budget. Mm -hmm. We're not going to be able to balance the budget in the next decade. It used to be that a goal of balancing the budget was very reasonable, and I wish we were back there. But the fiscal situation is now so bad because we have waited so long to address it, and we are borrowing more than a trillion dollars per year, heading towards $2 trillion per year. It's just out of reach. It would cost well over $14 trillion in savings. And frankly, this is a Congress that hasn't saved more than a couple hundred billion in decades, in a decade. So... Balancing the budget in 10 years is not a reasonable goal. Let's find a reasonable goal that instead of just putting out there as a great talking point, we can actually achieve. Let's get a win on the fiscal health of the country. The second thing I just want to point out is there is a lot of confusion that as though lifting the debt ceiling means you are authorizing new borrowing. That's not really the case. What's happening is that we are borrowing because legislation was passed that required us to borrow. We passed many, many tax cuts. We passed many, many spending increases. They were supported by Republicans. They were supported by Democrats. Many of them were bipartisan. There should be no finger pointing here because it goes all around. But this is about legislation that we already passed. So we have to lift the debt ceiling to accommodate that. Frankly, we should have the debt ceiling connected to the moment when you pass a legislation. If you are going to say, I'm passing this bill and it's going to require new borrowing, you should have to lift the debt ceiling then so you have the accountability. Um, But going forward, it makes a lot of sense to say we're going to take policies where we aren't borrowing more. In fact, for all of those people who want to be so fiscally responsible and make sure we have this conversation, and I applaud the notion of a conversation, I would encourage them, I'd encourage all lawmakers to actually promise not to engage in new borrowing in the coming year. We have huge deficits and debt. We have inflation, which borrowing makes worse. The economy is strong enough that this is the time there's no justification to borrow more. So those who really care about fiscal responsibility, they should agree that they're not going to pass legislation that, that adds to the debt. That would be the most fiscally responsible thing to get started on. That was Maya McGinnis, president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Next, we talked to Seth Jones from the Center for Strategic and International Studies about his new report on U.S. defense capabilities. Seth Jones, a headline from the Hill newspaper from earlier this week, according to a study, defense industry is unprepared for a war with China. That reports that study from CSIS. Uh, What makes us unprepared? Well, the challenge we have right now is that it's the defense industrial base right now, and it's both the industry and the U.S. military. We do not have um, uh, sufficient stockpiles, for examples, of munitions that will get us through even the first few days of a possible conflict in the Taiwan Straits with China. And the challenge is really it's less about war fighting, it's more about deterrence. Uh, part of the, I think, the need, and it's the, it's the integral part of the U.S.'s new national defense strategy, is to deter Chinese action. So in order to deter China, basic deterrence theory tells us that you need adequate stockpiles of munitions and capabilities to do that. And that's the problem we right now. It's long-range anti-ship missiles, those kinds of things. How do we know what's adequate, how much we need in a hypothetical war in the Taiwan Strait? So there are a couple of ways of doing it. One is uh, through uh, war games. Uh, And so what you can do and what we've done is a range of war games, uh, 24 different uh, 
uh, variations of a war in the Taiwan Straits, and you have different people play, you vary different, uh, different aspects of it, and what, do you, what gets used up uh, during those war games. And one of the things that we, we, uh, we were quite taken aback by, although at the range of classified war games with similar conclusions, that we run out of a range of precision munitions very quickly in a war. Now, you have to add on to that analyses. You have to add on to that. Um, uh, there's quantitative modeling that you can do. We've talked to ranges of folks on the Hill, in defense industry, and in the Department of Defense on this issue all came to really the exact same conclusion. Uh, CSIS.com is where you can go. The name of the study that we're talking about here, Empty Bins in a Wartime Environment, the Challenge to the U.S. Defense Industrial Base. Uh, Seth Jones, the author of that report, joining us to talk about it. Uh, Is it because, are these empty bins because we're sending so many munitions to Ukraine? No, I think, and that's an important question to ask, and it's an important one to answer. The wars in uh, the war in Ukraine right now is very different from the type of war or even deterrence that is required in the Indo-Pacific for for several reasons. One, it's largely a ground war in in Ukraine right now, and the U.S. isn't even fighting in it. So what the U.S. has sent are things like stingers and and javelins. Uh, What would be required primarily in an Indo-Pacific, that's largely a a maritime fight uh, and an air one. So very different. Uh, and you're talking about huge distances, and you're talking about a, a country, China, with much bigger military capabilities and better military capabilities than the Russians have. So what you need in that kind of a conflict are submarines. Uh, you need long-range strike because the uh, R- Chinese are going to push you back because they've got so much in their inventory. And then you need things like B-21s. These are the new strategic bombers. Very different fight. So, no, it would be, in my view, absolutely wrong to equate those two. Uh, What the U.S. should be doing, in my view, is providing assistance to Ukraine and also preparing for something in the Pacific. Tensions in Taiwan, between Taiwan and China, not new. Not new. Why are we unprepared? Why is this, why was this a surprise when we ran these war games? Well, I think there are a couple of things. Uh, One, one is it's the, you're right, this issue is not new. People have been talking about this problem for, for years, actually probably decades. What has changed are several things. One is what the war in Ukraine has shown us is that a conventional war, unlike Afghanistan or Iraq, which you're fighting the Taliban or ISIS, when you're fighting a major power or trying to deter them, it's an industrial war. You need munitions because you're expending them at large rates. We're at 10, 11 months into this uh, Ukraine war, and both sides are expending enormous rates of munitions. They also, equipment breaks down. You need spare parts. You need new battle tanks, which is the debate uh, we've had recently. And so stuff breaks down. And so that has really highlighted that these kinds of wars are industrial wars. The second issue I think that's put us uh, on alert, there's a sense of urgency, is that conventional war is not hypothetical. The Russians invaded a country, Ukraine. This is a real possibility. Now, I, I can't tell you how many times uh, we spoke to people before the war in Ukraine. Very senior officials in European governments did not believe something like this was possible in this era. Clearly, the Russians have proven everybody wrong. How does a, a war in, between China and Taiwan and the Taiwan Strait, how does it start? In, in your war games, what, is, what starts the shooting? Well, you could, I mean, there are a whole range of ways something, uh, a, a war like that could start. Uh, we looked at a Chinese uh, invasion, and, 
and and didn't focus as much on the the actual trigger event. It could be a Taiwanese Declaration of Independence. It could be um, uh, that the Chinese feel like, much like the Russians did, that the timelines for uh, conducting action in, in, in Taiwan are shortening because the U.S. is giving weapons to the uh, uh, Taiwanese government. So there could be a whole range of reasons that, that trigger that. But we, when, when you look at what a Chinese invasion would incorporate, we actually know this. U.S. knows this pretty well because we planned for this exact same invasion in World War II. We called it Formosa at the time, not Taiwan. And the U.S. actually decided not to do it, but to go to Iwo Jima and then uh, Okinawa instead. But it's a huge amphibious landing against uh, uh, Taiwan beachheads. Um, the other thing I would just add is I think it is important to recognize we're talking about an invasion of, of uh, Taiwan. For me, what's critical is to deter that even from happening. And those stockpiles are critical for deterring a war to begin with. So this is, this is for me, less about war fighting, per se, and more about deterrence. So if there were a hypothetical war between Taiwan and China, would there not be international contributions that would help fill the bins, as it were, that, that you're so concerned about? One would hope so, but probably different countries. Uh, the primary countries on the front lines in a war in the Pacific would be countries like Japan, South Korea, Australia, Philippines. Um, the types of munitions I think you'd be looking at are probably less the kinds we're seeing in uh, Ukraine right now, which are tanks, um, HIMARS, ATACMs that go on those HIMARS. Where there you're talking in the in the Pacific, you're really talking more about. Uh, maritime vessels. And do those countries have these these standoff weapons, these uh, the weapons that you were just referring to? Some. Uh, they're in the process of building them right now. There's a, a big, big uh, discussions right now between the U.S., the U.K., and Australia about building submarines. There should be an announcement in March of 2023 about what that deal looks like. Maybe the uh, Australians end up buying Virginia-class submarines. The uh, Japanese have already announced an increase in their defense budget. Um, they're looking at uh, buying uh, additional tomahawks, um, building uh, Japanese capabilities for long-range precision strikes. Same thing with the Australians. Uh, they're building the PRISM missile um, at uh, tomahawks as well. So there is a, a growing recognition among the U.S.'s allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific that they need to deter Chinese action with these kinds of munitions. The problem and the reason why this is a bit, there's a bit of urgency involved is because uh, of the time it takes to do that. About a two-year, at least, um, window to produce long-range munitions. But if you need more of them and you need to increase the size of the factories, you've got to build an additional time for negotiating real estate deals because those factories have to be a certain distance from local populations. You need insurance to cover it. So as the defense industry has said repeatedly, if you're going to ask us to do more, it's going to take some time. The U.S. started in the late 1930s uh, for when it eventually uh, got in World War II. This stuff doesn't happen in months and not even in a year or two. This is a multi-year process. That was Seth Jones from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Hear more interviews from C-SPAN's Washington Journal program on our website, cspan.org, on the C-SPAN Now app, or on C-SPAN television, live every morning from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern. 